Hellman uh, with Second Sunday Books, and I'm coming to you from Chicago, and I am very excited about my guest tonight. She is Patricia Skalka. She's written five mysteries. They're excellent mysteries um, that are set in Door County, Wisconsin. And if you're from the Midwest, you know Door County, and no one needs to say another word. If you're not, it's a resort area similar to, um, you know, arts and crafts camps in uh, New York in the Poconos in Pennsylvania and the Catskills in New York and even a little bit of uh, Fire Island mixed in. So it's a great setting for mysteries. And her fifth mystery came out uh, the past few months, uh, Death by the Bay, and we're going to be talking about it. But before we start, I just have a little bit of housekeeping to get uh, to go through, and that is to tell you that uh, Second Sunday Books and Authors on the Air are trademarked, excuse me, copyrighted podcast, and they are owned solely by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Okay, Patricia, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, Libby, and I'm happy to be here talking with you. <laughs> I'm happy to be here talking with you too. Um, tell us about Death by the Bay. Tell us a little bit about the story and. And then we'll talk about how it came to you. Ah, okay. The story is essentially, uh, first of all, in every mystery that I write, I always try to have a crime that occurs in the present time that is linked to something in the past. So the story is essentially a doctor dies apparently of a heart attack at a medical conference that my protagonist, Dave Kubiak, he's the local sheriff. He happens to be meeting someone for lunch you know, at the conference center. So he's on the scene. Something seems a little bit off to him, and he starts to be a little bit curious about it, especially then when at the very same day, uh, in the very same conference, a strange photo appears of a little boy on a wall, and a woman who works at the center identifies this child as her long time missing brother and the woman is uh, from Mexico and the child is it's hard to tell where the photo was taken and so Kubiak just gets you know he, he knows he has a sense that something is off and he starts looking into the death of the doctor and then what is behind this photo and why is this photo being displayed during a session at a medical conference you know in Wisconsin when this child disappeared from a village in Mexico years mm -hmm. back. Before we get into the uh, what you discovered scientifically, let me just ask you, why do you like tying a story to something that happened in the past as well as contemporary? For the simplest reason in the world, those are the kinds of mysteries I like to read. <laughs> so, you know, I decided when, you know, I used to be a nonfiction writer, and I always wanted to write novels, and I especially always wanted to write mysteries, and I just thought, I'm going to write the kind of books that I like to read. And that was the whole motivation. You know, there's nothing nothing mysterious about it. Okay, okay, that's exactly the kind that I like to read, too. So, now, you discovered some, you discovered um, a link, or you read about a link between Alzheimer's and Down syndrome, which just is, it floored me when I read about it in your book. Tell me more about that. Well, first of all, the, 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 the story that goes back in time 
in, in the book is one that started with a story my mother told me of something that happened to a neighborhood, uh, a child in the, in, the, in the farming community that she grew up in in central Wisconsin where a doctor or someone posing as a doctor uh, convinced the parents of a disabled child that he could help that child. It was either through a school or a clinic. You know, the details were a little bit fuzzy. And they gave him permission to take their daughter, and then they never saw her again. And not long after that, my my mother's one of her younger sisters had been afflicted with polio as an infant, and her speech and her mobility were compromised. And this same person came to my grandparents' farm with the same offer, and they by then knew what had happened with their neighbor. And my grandmother, according to my mother's story, my grandmother picked up a broom and chased this man out the door, and you know, through the farmyard to the road. And I was always, always haunted by that and tried to figure out, well, what could have been going on? I mean, it, there are any number of things that could have happened with, with that missing child and, you know, some of them more horrific than others. And I always wanted to write something about it, but I knew that there would be no, no way to trace this, you know, in, to, to do a, a, an investigative reporting kind of story. So when I switched to writing fiction and mysteries this was always sitting there in the back of my mind that I really wanted to do something and I knew uh, I had enough of a sort of a pseudoscience background to to figure out what could have been done in terms of research in polio and children who were afflicted with polio but I wanted that modern day story I needed something uh, a a disease as it were or a condition that was very much in in, you know in the news and in our time and that that would be linked to something that could could also affect children so i would have the parallel story and i you know i i read newspapers i read magazines the actual physical copies of these things and i clip articles all the time and i was looking through the new york times one day and this headline just jumped out and and just hit me and it was a headline about a link between down syndrome and alzheimer's and I, I knew immediately that that was it. I now had my parallel story so I could write this mystery. Um, and, and it was the, the science behind it is, is kind of very simple and mind-boggling. Um, Down syndrome uh, patients have, have what are called, they have like plaque in the brain. So, so all the right. signals kind of get, you know, they don't go through clearly from one neuron to another because there are these growths and things that are making the brain kind of fuzzy. I mean, that would be like a real layperson's term. And that right. is what happens when you develop dementia. These things grow or develop in the brain. So the theory was that if they could figure out, now Down syndrome uh, patients are born with this plaque in the brain. It's a protein that, that runs amok. Um, if they could figure out how to cure or slow or affect it somehow, then they would have not necessarily a cure for Alzheimer's, but they would be on the road uh, to finding a solution. And in the meantime, they might be able to slow it down. So that was the, that was the link. And, and, they could and also, they could also find a cure maybe for Down syndrome. Well, well possibly. I mean, I don't, you know, that was, I, I would think that that might be the ultimate goal, but I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, if it works in one uh, situation, it might work in another. Uh, but but uh, presumably, uh, that was, you know, I don't know about that. But it was just a fascinating um, article to read. And, and I started doing more research and finding 
you know, the, you know, I, I have my, my protagonist go to the library, or not to the library, but he sits in front of his computer and Googles, you know, he Googles like the, what would be the, the kind of, of information that the layperson could acquire. And then he gets to a research page that, that is full of the, you know, lists all of these abstracts of scientific studies that are being done. And there were literally hundreds of them. As he discovered, I stopped counting at 300 as he did. Now, a lot of them were the same kind of studies, you know, because they they have to try and duplicate things. So there it was. Um, I had my story. All I had to do then was write it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us about the, um, the, there's the Institute in the Present, correct? The Medical Institute in the Present. But then there's an, an asylum in the past, I believe, the Yes, and and I named it the Northern Hospital for the Insane. Now, that never did exist. There was no such an institution, but there were institutions like that, mental hospitals that were um, in many, many states. Michigan had them, Wisconsin had them, regional kinds of centers, because people who had emotional conditions or mental conditions, you know, we're talking, you know, 80 years ago, 75 years ago, there were no treatments or, you know, people didn't know how to deal with, with, um, with people who were mentally ill. And they would often uh, put these institutions in kind of isolated areas, you know, up in the North Woods, far away from the local community. And, and they were grand buildings, you know, they were, they were built with all of the best of intentions. And, you know, each county or each town, however it was set up, would be allowed to have X number of patients because, there, of course, there was a limit. But as we know, um, sometimes good intentions are the, the path to, um, to a place nobody wants to go. And uh, there were abuses. And, you know, if, if you had a wayward child, a teenager who would, who, you know, someone we would call a, a juvenile delinquent, you know, the parents could just confine them to a place like that. Or if a woman was, you know, just kind of considered wild and, and the husband couldn't control her, he could have her committed to a place like that. I mean, I read through uh, past police records and sheriff county records in, in indoor county, and it was frightening what happened uh, to people who society didn't know what to do with. So in my story, this doctor who's a medical doctor, he establishes, he's in charge of the medical wing at this institute of this Northern Hospital for the Insane. You know, he's there to, to, to deal with anyone who is a patient there who gets physically ill, but he has, you know, kind of con- carte blanche to do what he wants in this wing. So he's able to do this other research on these other children that he brings in. Um, well, that, that's the way my story goes. Right, right. And you have him doing um, kind of weird things to these kids. Well, it's, it, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's a takeoff on what, um, it, you know, the, the cure for smallpox was um, basically that they, you know, and, and it was Edwin Jennings, a British doctor who discovered it, that you inoculate people with the blood of someone who was exposed to right. um, animals that had a, a, a pox, a similar kind of disease. And this gave them the immunity. So the, the idea behind the research that this particular doctor was doing was that if he could match the blood type from a person who had polio and that he could then inoculate people against the disease. 
Um, <laughs> it was a wacky way of thinking, but it made a kind of logical sense if you looked at at how they initially developed vaccines and things like that. And what was interesting was that in the flu epidemic of what was it like 1917 that killed so many yeah. hundreds of thousands of people people in the United States lost faith in traditional medicine so they were looking for different for alternatives so they would have you know to them if this worked and of course it didn't but if it worked it would have been seen as a natural way of treating an illness or of protecting against a condition wow that's that's now here's a question. You you had you did an, an enormous amount of research, I know. And yet in the story, you make it so approachable. There's very little scientific language and you explain it in ways that people can just readily grasp. Is that something that you worked really hard to do? I used to be, for 20 years, I was a staff writer for the Reader's Digest, and many of the stories I did revolved around medical issues. So it's something I learned um, to do in writing these, these kinds of medical feature stories. I would have to go in and talk to researchers about scientific developments and medical developments that I didn't know anything about, and I would have to do enough research to get to the point where I could ask intelligent questions and get them to explain it to me at a level where I could then explain it to people who didn't know anything about it like I did when I, you know, when I first started the process. So um, I had been doing this as part of my, my career. So it, it actually was not hard to do because I'd been doing it. You know, I knew how to do it because of these articles that, that I would write. I would, I would talk to doctors, and they speak their own language, you know, and you'd have to keep interrupting them and say, what does that mean? Uh, is it like this? If I were a patient, what would you tell me? If I were the patient's family, how would you explain this to me? And keep bringing them down to a level where they were speaking mm-hmm. not doctor ease but English, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so I kind of learned how to interpret things and, and, um, um, and go from there. Yeah, well, that, you did a great job because I could Thank follow you. it really easily. Um, you have a, a, a string of characters in this book um, that, you know, you were able to introduce. And uh, so, well, I'm curious, aside from Kubiak, who is your protagonist, which character in this story did you like the most or did you like creating the most? The one that I like creating the most in the whole series uh, would be um, Evelyn Bethard, the, the the retired coroner. He was the coroner in the first book, and then he became the retired coroner in the subsequent books. And I just like him because he's he's different from the others. He's kind of erudite, and he's he represents the opposite kind of adult or or older figure in in a, that, that Kubiak knew. Kubiak grew up in a family. His mother was. Um, uh, his mother was was a, a just always complaining and cynical and seeing the negative side of everything. His father was basically an alcoholic who had lost faith in life and and every and 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 possibilities and was also very cynical and always saw the dark side and the negative side of life. And and Evelyn Bassard is completely the opposite. And so Kubiak 
is drawn to him. He's also the first person who befriended Kubiak in, in, in the initial book, Death Stalks Dark County. So they form a, a really a nice, solid bond. And I just I like that contrast, and I like the fact that Kubiak had someone to look up to and someone to rely on it. And also Bethard was a long-time resident of Door County. His family had been there for generations, so he had a history and a knowledge that Kubiak learned to depend on. Now, it's interesting. Both the characters you've just uh, been talking about are men, and um, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm a black man, too. But um, did you have any... Uh, issues writing from a male point of view because most of the book is written from Kubiak's point of view. You know that's a great question because when I was first thinking about the, um, the 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 first story, which I intended to just be a standalone, I never thought I was going to write a series. Um, I was I needed a character from the outside because the story was linked to events from the past. So I didn't want a, a protagonist who knew everybody and knew the old grudges and you know all of the old histories. And and I was just. You know, I don't know, Kubiak was just there. He was just kind of in the corner, you know, kind of. He grew up with the story. And I knew a lot of Chicago cops, and they all happened to be met by a lot, I mean like six. And they they were all men. They were all friends of my husband's. And I, um, you know, I listened to their stories. I, I kind of knew what they had gone through and what some of their issues were. I was also the oldest the first girl in a in a batch of cousins preceded by a, again like a, an older brother and like four boys who were all mm-hmm. older than me who dragged me around and you know I was like the when they needed a, a fourth person to shoot pool I was it so uh, you know I grew up with I grew up with boys literally and you know the first girl didn't come along for another few years and you know um, so I, I just kind of felt comfortable in that milieu. Um, I also thought it was more realistic at the point in time. You know, I wanted an older figure um, for for Kubiak to relate to, and it was probably not very realistic to think that there would have been a woman who had been in the coroner for you know decades in mm-hmm. in a place you know in in a in a rural area like that. So Bassard, you know, was was a logical kind of character to create, and um, Kubiak. When I sat down to actually write the first book, I had to ask myself, do I stay with this Kubiak character or do I um, have a woman instead be my protagonist? And I just felt that since he had kind of grown up with the story that I needed to, to go with what was organic to it and to kind of stay true to it. Um, I do have the books read by my former boss, whom I trust explicitly, and he kind of, you know, gauges on would a guy say this or would a man think this way. So I, I, I do have that kind of filter to go through. Um, but I think mostly I rely on my my experience growing up with, you know, all of these male figures in my life. Great. Well, that makes it easy. Plus, you have an easy way to get police procedure correct done correctly when you have questions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the one book that uh, the the third book, I actually had to interview the FBI because I have an FBI involvement. So, you know, I went to them, but I knew the kinds of questions to ask and, and, and how to get the information I needed. Right. 
Now, I, I do want to say one thing. The, the ending, I mean, the, the climax of the book is um, riveting, and you have to read it, but there's no violence in this book, um, which is really unusual for a mystery. Um, and I, I just wanted to point that out to our listeners who may may not be fond of violence. I mean, who is? But um, was there any particular reason that it happened that way, or was it just that's the way the story unfolded. Well, there are two reasons, and and there are two two people do die. There are two murders in the in the book. It's, it, so, um, but but they're they're sort of like you know they they they're not happening in front of the reader as such. Um, the the book that preceded this, um, Death Rides the Ferry, had a kind of a, a very action-packed ending where there was more one-on-one violence and, and, and more immediate danger. Um, and, and I liked, and, and the, because the story demanded it. And so I wanted to have maybe a balance to that. I didn't want to repeat that kind of ending, but also the story didn't demand it. I think if you impose anything on a story that isn't organic to it or doesn't kind of flow naturally with with the events um the reader can pick up on that and it just doesn't fit so this story just this is this was a natural ending for the kind of story that i wrote so that's the way i went it was it was very nice it was nicely done um one other thing you title your chapters which i find amazing because i don't think i could um, how how did you get into that habit, and and why do you do it? I do it because my editor asked me to um, <laughs> for the very first book. Because I, when I submitted the manuscript, there were no titles on the chapters uh, except maybe like Saturday Day One or something, and and I plotted it out more like on a timeline. And the my publisher wanted titles, and it was such a bizarre thing because. I had just finished this entire, you know, 75,000-word manuscript, and then I thought, I can't write titles for chapters. That's impossible. So uh, I, I kind of resisted, but they really wanted them. And so I sat down, I made a list, you know, of the numbers, 1 through 22 or 23, and just started playing with it. And after a while, it started to get I found that I could do it, and it became kind of a fun game to play. Um, and sometimes now when I'm writing, I'll even think, hmm, you know, like a phrase, I'll, I'll use a phrase, and I'll think, oh, that might be a great title for this particular chapter. So sometimes now they just grow along or, or appear along with the manuscript, not for every chapter, but a few of them will, will do that. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, it, it was my publisher's request. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Sarah Paretsky does that too. Um, and her titles are, are sometimes very complex and obscure, and you have to really hunt for the relevance. But I, I am in awe of those of you who can do that. Um, so how, how did you become a writer? What made you decide you wanted to be a writer? I'm not sure I know what made me decide I wanted to be a writer because I was writing before, you know, when I was like in, like I was five years old, six years old, I didn't even have this penmanship skills. I would sit at the kitchen table and with a little notepad that my mom handed me and I would uh, just print out little stories that I thought of. Um, it, it was just a, a, 
maybe it's just the way my brain worked, the way I like to think. Uh, I did not know how to draw. I couldn't paint. I couldn't do anything really creative uh, that in, required any kind of a skill like that. But I liked reading, and I liked to, ha- to be read to, and I enjoyed stories, and I just thought it was fun to write my own. Um, so that's how it started. How did you uh, veer toward mysteries? Probably because I enjoy, I, I like puzzles, I like solving things, and and you know it, it, early on when I started reading, uh, it was the um, you know the usual path and Nancy Drew and the Agatha Christie's and Sherlock Holmes. I loved all the old Sherlock Holmes stories, trying to figure out you know what was the mystery, how did this happen, the speckled band. To this day, I remember that that story, um, and and it it appealed to me, and I. I guess it was just the the solving of of a puzzle. But when I read Dorothy Sayers and her Lord Peter Whimsey mysteries, that's when I realized that a mystery was more than just a a solution to a crime, more than just a whodunit, that if you you did it right, that you had um, a window into human character. And that Mm -hmm. really, really appealed to me. And those were the kinds of, you know, I thought, that's what I want to write. I want to write something where, where the character development is as important as the plot line. You know, that what's right. happening with the character, how his life or her life progresses is as important as to the solution to the crime. Mm-hmm. And, and I always looked at them as uh, mysteries as an opportunity to explore um, a social issue or, um, you know, an economic issue or a political issue, because, uh, you know, that was the depth that I thought mysteries could take us into. And I, I remember reading um, um, Jerry, um, The Staked Goat by, uh, he passed on now, and I'm having a senior moment, but everybody knows who I mean, Jerry, Jerry, anyway. And there was a sub theme in that book about the aftermarket of Vietnam weapons and how they were sold on the black market. And that, and I had this light bulb go off and saying, Oh my God, you can do that. You can do that in a mystery and people like it. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, um, one of my favorite mysteries that I read ages ago was uh, Gorky Park by Martin Cruz Smith. And it was the same kind of thing. He like really pulled the curtain aside and, and let you see in, into the internal workings of, of the Kremlin and the KGB and, and how someone who was idealistic and, and trying to, to be true to Mother Russia, but who had to, to work under these constraints and, and the corruption, you know, how, how his protagonist was affected. So I found that just fascinating. You're right. I mean, people do like that. It, it's a way of learning about the world. Exactly. And you offered that in your medical, in this medical thriller, which people, people are describing as a, as a medical thriller, which is, which, you know, I, did you know you wrote medical thrillers? <laughs> no, I didn't. And, and I'm, uh, but I'm delighted because I wanted to do a medical investigative reporting story, which I was never able to do. So I'm delighted that I was able to do a medical thriller. And I have had, I did a, a, an event in Madison, Wisconsin, right when uh, the book first came out. And there was a woman in the audience. And when I finished talking about it and talking about the experience that my family almost had with this kind of situation, she raised her hand and she said, I know a family that lived in, and she named a town in Wisconsin that I had never heard of. And she said the same thing happened to them as happened to 
the the character the you know the, the person that my mother told me about and to the character in the story that I wrote and yep. my blood just went cold. Yeah, I bet it did. Well, tell us a little bit about what you um you you do writing workshops, uh, correct? And you do them in I different do. places around the country. Tell us a little bit about those. Well, I do a variety of them. Uh, I, I do things that have to do with mystery writing, um, you know, how to develop a good uh, a series that will work, what are, what are the components you need, uh, what are the five elements or the nine elements that, that you, you should think of before you start writing the first book. And also I do uh, workshops on dialogue, uh, character development, and there's a really basic one that I like to do that's um, how to become a better writer that a works with no matter what you're writing, you know, whether you're writing mysteries or romance or, or literary, just really, really basic things of how you can take your manuscript and make it better. Uh, what do you look for? What do you, what do you cross out? Um, you know, just a whole variety of things. And, and it's fascinating to me to work with people who are, are just kind of starting out because, you know, you're a veteran at this and, and I guess I've becoming a veteran at it. Um, there are many things we just take for granted that we know that are a matter of course um, that we had to learn, but I think we've forgotten that we had to learn them. And so many people who are starting out don't know these really basic things, and they're eager to learn them, and, and it's up to us to kind of share our knowledge. Yeah, for example, what, like what? Well, for example, just as something as simple as, as what, a, what a log line is and how it can be helpful to you and why you need one and how it keeps you focused and that you don't have to wait till you're finished with your manuscript to develop a log line. Um, something as important as knowing the word count of your final manuscript because that's mm-hmm. what editors want to know and publishers. They want to know how many words. And what what's the guideline for word count for the various kinds of genres? So you need to know these things ahead of time, um, and it's helpful. So really basic things that, that are become innate are not innate if you're just starting out. Interesting. So you also wrote some nonfiction books before you turned to fiction. Can you tell I us did. a little bit well, the the one that I did that that um, I really think has is a very interesting story, and it's a human interest story. It was um, Nurses on Our Own, which was a true story of two um, RNs in Chicago who opened one of the nation's first uh, nurse practitioner offices, and they had experiences with you know people who resented the fact that they were doing it people who, who didn't trust them, even though they were both, you know, like like well-regarded nurses in their field. And then th- their employer, their hospital they worked for, fired them and said, you can't do that. And they said, well, doctors have their own practices. Why can't nurses? So they sued the hospital, lost their jobs, and then as they're struggling to keep their practice going, um, you know, they're 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 trying to hang on to their their reputation because they think you know if if the hospital fired us, everyone's going to think we have a terrible reputation as nurses. So it's a very complex story about two women kind of coming into their own personally and professionally because this happened in the 70s. You know, when in in many hospitals, nurses still had to stand up when the doctor walked into the room. You know, there was a whole different kind of relationship going on there and um they they were they broke through you know they kind of 
opened the door for many, many other women to follow. So it was a it was a great story. And both of them happened to be married to Chicago policemen. So that was an interesting kind of, of a little sidetrack to the whole story. So that was that was um actually it was optioned for a TV movie. Never never got made, but it it would have been a fantastic movie and still would be a fantastic movie. So that was one. And then um, I did one for the American Medical Association on um, things you needed to know as you grew older into your 50s. That would meant interviewing experts and, and physicians and researchers all across the country. So I did those two. I also um, did one with um, a woman who started an organization um, for children who were suffering from grief, uh, either because of a death or a divorce in the family or some major kind of loss. So I learned a lot there. Um, those are probably the primary ones that I did. Wow. Interesting. Did you find the switch from writing nonfiction to writing fiction um, difficult? Did it, did it change your style of writing? It did change my style of writing, and I, I found that there was more to learn than I realized I had to learn. It wasn't just an automatic um, step from, you know, this rock to, to that stone. Um, I, I still had to learn more about plotting a story, and the first version I wrote of, of Death Stalks Door County uh, was, you know, like not it, it just didn't work because I didn't do it right. I kind of created my own path, and it wasn't the way mysteries were supposed to be written. Um, so I did have a lot to learn, but I knew a lot too. I mean, I knew I knew how to be disciplined. I knew how to meet a deadline. I knew how to um, how to write a good sentence. How to how to craft the you know the concept of full circle that you start your story at a certain point and you you kind of raise a question or a dilemma, and you have to resolve that by the end. So the reader is satisfied. I mean, you do that when you write an article. You do that when you write a book. Right. Right. Interesting. Well, we are about out of time for our um, for our talk. One last question for you. What's next? Uh, well, right now I'm working on book six in my Dave Kubiak Door County Mystery Series. So that for the immediate future is what's next. I signed a contract for book seven. So. I will be busy with those, and when I finish that, then I have to decide uh, if I'm going to continue the series or if I'm going to uh, move into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, very good. I, I, you know, do you have any? Do you have a desire to move into something else? I think you did. I think you did once tell me that you you had a an idea. Well, I do. I actually have a manuscript that I wrote, and it's a mystery that involves just two women in their relationship growing up and then going into adulthood. And it's a really good story and I like it a lot, but it needs work. And the first thing I would do, I think is, is turn to that because I would, I would like to get that book published. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very, uh, very engaged with the story. Wonderful. Well, Patricia, this has just been fascinating. I love listening to you because not only are you a fine writer, you really are a great conversationalist. Thank you so much for Well, it's your- my pleasure, Libby, and thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, we will be back again next month with another edition of Second Sunday Books. Until then, enjoy and keep up that reading.